So every week here at City Light, we spend some time uh, looking at God's Word together. Um, we believe that in the Bible, God has spoken to us, and we can understand who He is and what He has to say to us. And so today we're looking at the very end of one of the accounts of Jesus' life, teaching, death, and resurrection. Really, Jesus' parting words to the church. So it's in Matthew 28, verse 18. It'll be on the screen as well. And it says, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. I'm a newly commissioned lead pastor at City Light, so thank you for everyone. Oh, it's, ah, yeah, I wasn't expecting that. That's nice. But uh, thank you to everyone who was um, able to make it last week and to mask up to be there. It was um, a special moment to be able to share with everyone. And, uh, and I look forward to getting into this series for the year, laying out as a, a leadership team where we think God is leading us over this year and to get ready for a year no matter what's to come. And I really think that most people have one of two mindsets when it comes to 2021 this year. I think a lot of people going into December as Freedom Monday hit started to think, wow, this is the turning point. 2021 is going to be completely different. It's going to be, you know, the gates are open, the war has ended, that kind of thing. And then uh, it got shut down after about three minutes. And after that, everyone was like, okay, we might be in for a bit of a bumpy ride. And I reckon people are heading into the year with either a mindset to just survive and like we'll just call it a draw and hopefully 2022 is a great year or with a mindset to make the most out of this year regardless what happens. And I think as a church, individually and as a church, biblically we need to have the mindset to thrive in 2021. And let me illustrate it this way. Last year, so 2020, was the first year I had the privilege of being a soccer coach. And I wasn't just a soccer coach, I was a soccer coach and dad. So I could live out many of my unfulfilled hopes and dreams through my children on the field. But the first week we played, there was a little bit of hype around what was to happen because I had no idea what it was going to be like. A lot of the team were first-timers. And we get on the pitch and we lose 3-0. I'm like, that's fine. They looked like they had some really involved-looking parents, a lot of yelling on the sidelines. I was like... They look like they've played together for a while. They kind of know what they're doing. They're probably one of those teams, they'll get graded up halfway through the season, so that's fine. And then we lost the second game by a lot more. I thought, well, that's, that's fine. It's just a blip. Like, you can have a, a bad form run. We're just kind of getting the feel for things. And then we're about three to four to five games in, and we're still losing by the size of, like, a cricket score. I was like, okay, all right. And then I, and then I switch gears. Then I sort of lost the optimism around like, you know, sort of attacking football and that sort of thing. I started to think, I just don't want them to get belted. Let's just, and so I'd put all the best players at the, at the back. If you're familiar with soccer, it's called parking the bus. It's a very common Italian strategy. But you just, you put everyone at the back in the hope that you just minimize the damage. Hopefully we can salvage a nil-all draw. But the funny thing about that was as soon as we started doing that, we kept losing more games and by more margin. 
And so it's funny that the mindset to be de- defensive or to play it safe actually ends up making things worse. And when the results started to come through, and by results I mean a few nil-all draws, was when we were actually trying to attack. And then in the final game of the season, they actually got a goal. In fact, before that, one of my boys nearly got a goal, and the kid on the other team handballed it, like, it, like just plucked it out of the air. And I thought, you jerk. You have no idea what you are taking from me at this point. But it's funny, and like, like you think I'm exaggerating, I was genuinely upset, right? But it's funny, that, it's funny how much a mindset can change the outcome. And I want to put to you that this year, we shouldn't have the mindset as a church to play for a draw. And over this series, this talk in particular is how, as a church, we're going to look to, survive, to thrive and not just survive. And next week, and the weeks following that, up to the weekend away, we're looking at how, as individuals, we'll not just survive and just kind of scrape through the year, but actually thrive knowing that God wants to work powerfully through us. And so we're looking at this week at how it is that we're going to do that as a church, because it matters. And because if we hold the truths of the gospel to be true, then the right and logical response is to act knowing that God is going to work through us. To act with a mindset to thrive as a church community and not just survive. Last year, as Jacob was saying, there were, it was in some ways a fit mode to just survive. Unprecedented territory, people working out, just getting their feet in all kinds of ways. But this year is the year to press on and to thrive. And so I'm going to pray that as we open God's Word at the end of the Gospel of Matthew, that He would stir our hearts by His Spirit to have a deep love for Him and a desire to thrive as a church community. Let's pray that He would do that work. Father God, we praise You that You love us, that You've poured out Your love upon us through Jesus, and that You have given Your Spirit to empower us for Your mission. And so, Father, we pray that as a church community, we would thrive, that we would be a people who are longing to honor you with every part of our lives and to see people come to real faith in you and all for the glory of your name. Amen. Well, Matthew's gospel, which is his account of Jesus, his eyewitness account of Jesus' life, his teaching, his death and his resurrection, he ends the gospel of Matthew with a commission. Jesus stands up before his 11 disciples, one of them having left, having betrayed him, And he stands up before the remaining disciples and he gives them a charge. After having risen from the dead, he says to them first this, Matthew 28, 18. It says, And Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Jesus makes the claim that all authority belongs to him. And that, of course, is not a minor claim. What is it? He's not being, he's not exaggerating. He's not saying, Look, I've got a lot of authority. I'm a pretty influential kind of leader. I'm actually a pretty powerful person. I can make things happen. He's not exaggerating when he says, all authority in heaven and on earth is mine. And the reason he is able and fit to say that is because he has just conquered the one thing that no one has been able to conquer since the dawn of time, death. That he himself is not saying that he just has the power to raise people, but he himself has overcome death. The story of the Bible is the story that we were not made for death. But when we walked away from our Creator, death entered in and we were separated from the God who made us and separated from Him for eternity. 
And Jesus came to bridge the divide by dying the death that we had earned in our place to bring us back to God. And to demonstrate that he had power to do it, he's raised from the dead to demonstrate that he had, the death cannot hold him down, that he has all authority. And so he says to them, all authority in heaven and earth has been given me. I mean, just think of how significant that is. To be standing before someone who has authority over death. I was reminded this week of just how powerless we can be in the face of death. Now, before I get too dramatic, it's just the story of the, the fact that our family rabbit died this week. Oh no, that is sad. And the, our boys are really sad. And then the next day they're like, it's funny, I'm not that sad anymore. And it's kind of good, we've got a dog. And so that... <laughs> Sorry, Jack. <laughs> Out with the old, in with the new. But the way the moment happened was a little bit, uh, not confronting, but I was, it was unexpected. I was in the lounge room and Harper called out and she said, Dad, what's wrong with Jack? And she was standing there holding the stiff as a board rabbit. And I, like, you can imagine, I had no idea what to do. I had no idea how to comfort her in that moment or what to say. And so I won't bore you with the details of what happened next. But eventually I explained to her what happened. And I remember just being so shocked. And I remember thinking, like, it, it is, it's quite a confronting thing. You, you, like, to, to behold death is a sense and an imminent sense of your own powerlessness, isn't it? There is so little I can do or say. And think how significant it is that Jesus is standing before him saying, I'm the one person who's ever walked the earth who can do something and can say something. He has authority over everything. Just think about all the things you do not have authority over that matter to you. You don't have authority over your life. You didn't choose to be born. You didn't choose the circumstances in which you were born. You go to sleep and you wake up hoping that you'll wake up, but you have no power over it. You don't have authority, authority over your body or illness. If your body decides to get sick, that's it. You don't have power really over the friends or relationships in your life that you cherish. You don't have power over the economic climate. You don't have power over a global pandemic. Obviously, you don't have authority over whether or not Australia goes to war. There is so little that we really have any authority over that has such huge consequences for our life. And yet Jesus does. He says, all authority. Not most, not a lot, not more than the average. All authority is His. He has authority over the air you're breathing right now over whether or not you make it out of this building alive, over whether or not we go into recession, over the relationships and people in your life, over nations and wars and rumors of wars. He has complete authority and He has demonstrated it through the resurrection. Jesus is not mucking around when He says here, all authority is mine. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. And so he, when He says this, they're paying attention to what He says next. Because when the person who has all authority in heaven and earth gives you a command, you'd be listening. And look at the command that he gives them. In Matthew 28, 19 to 20, he says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. He gives a very clear mission to his church. He says, Make disciples of all nations. Don't discriminate according to ethnicity or background, or language, or culture. He says, go to anyone and everyone and tell them about me. Tell them that I love them, that I've died for them, that I've conquered death for them, that all they have to do is to know me. They don't have to achieve it. 
They don't have to work for it. I will forgive them and set them free. He says, go and make disciples. Baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And then he says, and teach them to observe everything I've commanded you. So everything that he teaches about generosity, love, relationships, forgiveness, holiness, he says, teach them that. Really what he's saying is make more disciples, and as you make them, make them stronger. Teach them to bring all of life under the lordship and authority of Jesus because it is good. And this is what it looks like to be a thriving church. That's why our mission statement is to make more and stronger disciples. It's to obey the command of Jesus, the one who has all authority in heaven and on earth. A thriving church is one that is seeing people come into a new relationship with Jesus. And then as they do that, that they are growing stronger in their faith. It's the mission that never, ever stops. But the question that we wanted to answer as a church community is, if we were to do that, if we were to fulfill that charge, if God were to work graciously amidst this community by His Spirit, over the next few years, what would church look like? And so at the end of last year, uh, we mentioned to you that uh, an organization called Reach Australia that helps churches to plan and to work through things as we reviewed the past year, the closing of our Burwood campus, the pandemic, everything that goes with that, and started to plan for a future. We started to, to think of the question, well, what would it look like if we were to faithfully follow Jesus in this and he was to work through our community over the next few years? What would we look like? And with the staff, with the elders and spouses, we sat down and this is what we feel God is calling us to be. To be a growing, healthy, multi-generational church having a Sydney-wide impact for Christ. We want to be a growing, healthy, multi-generational church that's having a Sydney-wide impact for Christ. Now why? Because churches that obey the Great, the great Commission grow and they grow healthy and they grow as a healthy, multi-generational church. If you don't believe me, just look at the sequel to Matthew, which is the book of Acts. In the book of Acts, Jesus gives the charge to his disciples, and they go out and they begin to share the word of God. And look what happens in Acts 2, 40-47, right after Peter shares the gospel for the first time. It says, So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any has need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. As his church looks to share the gospel, God adds. He builds his church. Churches that obey the Great Commission grow. And not more than that, as they look to bring all of their life under Jesus' teaching, as they share, as they are radically generous, as they make provision for the needs of the poor, they grow in favor with the people around them and more people are getting saved. And it finishes by saying the Lord added to their number day by day. That's what it looks like to be a church that thrives have new people coming in the doors, some who've never met Jesus before. And those who are Christian actually growing stronger in their faith and growing as disciples of Jesus. We want to be a church that's growing. 
But secondly, churches that obey the Great Commission are healthy. So what do we mean by that? I mean, you know, that's kind of a buzzword. That's an influencer type word. That kind of word floats around. What are we talking about in the context of Jesus' church? I want to share with you one weird little story in Acts chapter 6. In Acts chapter 6, we read this strange story. Just tune in with me for this. It says, Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. So this is the food being given out to widows, Hellenists being non-Jews and the Hebrews being of Jewish descent. It says, And the twelve, that is, uh, the apostles, summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And so they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, and Philip and Prochorus and Nicanor and Timon and Parmenas and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. And these they set before the disciples, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. What a boring story. In the middle of a book where people are dying and being raised to life, where there's the threat of persecution around every corner, where you know, one of the disciples is beheaded, where there's, just, there's action everywhere, suddenly there's this story about like a morning tea roster. Why is that in there? The tension is that they are making provision for widows, which is the second most vulnerable group in an ancient society after orphans, and they're making provision for them, and it seems like there's some favoritism towards those of Jewish descent. And the idea is that because they're making disciples of all nations, there's not to be one racial group that should be, you know, a given a provision over another or preference over another. And so they're concerned about this and rightly concerned. And the apostles hear about it and they don't dismiss it. They're like, yeah, this matters. This is a serious issue. But they also realize that they can't do everything. And so they gather the church together and they start empowering other leaders to take up the load. They say, look, we can't do it all. We can't be taking the Word of God out there and managing this, but it's serious and it needs to be taken care of. And so they start to organize the church to share the load so that together as the body of Christ, they work on making more and stronger disciples. A healthy church is one that recognizes that even though we are empowered by the Spirit, we are still limited human beings and we need to share the load among one another. A healthy church is one where people are not being overburdened and doing so much that their life becomes about serving God rather than being with God. It's unhealthy. Just think of it this way. If you, are, if you watched the Jordan documentary when it came out last year, which you may have because it was during lockdown and everyone was just smashing huge amounts of TV. We'll get to that in the next part of Thriving individually in the series. But um, there is the story of early in his career... He was an MVP, he was a superstar player. But um, the Chicago Bulls, which were his team from the beginning to the end of his first career, you can get on to that bit later. But um, uh, in the beginning of his career, they, the team had one strategy. And the strategy was, get the ball to Jordan. He was a superstar player, and so as soon as any player got the ball, they were just like, well, we know where it's going, it's going straight to Jordan. The problem was that they could never get through the playoffs. And the reason for it was that 
at one point, Jordan put on 60 points, right? almost a whole team's worth of points to try and get them through, and it still wasn't enough. And then they realized they needed to switch strategy. And so a new coach comes in, Phil Jackson, who's the one who actually takes them uh, to, a pre- uh, to a title. And he, he switches up the strategy and he tells Jordan, look, I've got to be honest with you, you're going to be getting the ball a whole lot less because we need a, a bunch more shooting opportunities if we're ever actually going to get a title. Right? You can't do it all by yourself. You're, as, as incredible as you are, you're a limited human being. Now, it's true, it's true for the Bulls, but it's true for Jesus' church. Jesus glorified when his people together as the body of Christ share the load to be a healthy church. Pete Scazzaro, an expert in, in church health, says spiritual health is when your doing for God is not exceeded by your being with God. We want to be a church that has a culture among serving, where we are serving for the long term, where people are serving in roles and loving it because you're not being overloaded, but you are growing deeper in your love for God and your ministry and service is an overflow of that. And so on that, we want to be a healthy church, a growing church and a healthy church. But the third thing we mentioned is that churches that obey the Great Commission are multi-generational. In the book of Acts, as the gospel goes out, it starts with a pretty uniform-looking group of guys. But within days, let alone weeks, months, and years, it is a diverse and wide-ranging group of people, the family of God. When we started this church, we were 27 people with almost half the group somewhere around the age of uni or just graduated, and there was only six kids among it. We only, we'd only thrown in one kid in the mix at that point, so we've done our bit. But now, we are slightly more spread out across more 25 to 35, still very much a young church, which in many ways is a blessing because if you look at church statistics, this age bracket is the thin end of the wedge, and so it matters that we'd be reaching people. But we want to move towards being a multi-generational church. That is one generation up to draw from the benefit of older brothers and sisters in Christ and for our kids to go one generation up to youth. That we might be spread across the ages, the family of God. That we'd be a genuine family of God with diverse backgrounds, a love for one another, but united by Christ. That's multi-generational. Churches that obey the Great Commission are multi-generational. And lastly, churches that obey the Great Commission reach wider. When we started initially, our focus here was largely on the peninsula in Balmain. And over time, we've had community groups that are spread out further and further around Sydney, really a 20-minute radius kind of around here. And our hope is that we will continue to have communities that are meeting across Sydney where people are growing stronger in their love for Christ and reaching more and more people for Jesus. Because in the gospel, in the book of Acts, sorry, we see that the gospel goes out by concentric circles. It goes out from Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth. And Jesus says that will happen. That is, as the word is preached, it continues to go out. Now, the thing that pushed the gospel out in the book of Acts was persecution. Whereas in Sydney, it's largely housing prices, so a little bit different. Um, But all the same, the gospel continues to go out. We want to be a church that is shooting the the gospel as well as we can. To be a church that is growing, healthy, multi-generational, and having a Sydney-wide impact for Christ because Christ is worth it. But Jesus is our treasure. So that's our vision. And this vision will mean a couple of things that I want to draw your attention to today as a, as a whole church community. One of them is not particularly visible, and one of them will be quite visible. 
The first one is that, that's not particularly visible is that as part of our console process, Reach Australia has made some recommendations about how to strengthen our governance structure for the future. How to ensure that we're transparent, accountable, and involving a wider group of men and women to, to uh, manage City Light as an incorporated association. Now, we are massively blessed to be served by godly and wise elders in Cam Lyon, Rob, and Chris Ainsley. And they have served this church selflessly and humbly. And so we've been working together to ensure that our governance structure is as biblical and as strong as it can be. And on this point, I want to stop just a moment just to single out Chris for a moment. Uh, Chris, who is actually my brother-in-law, is someone who I know not just in a church context, but I get to see him on holidays. You get to see that he's the same person off duty as on. He's someone who radiates love for Christ, and he loves and serves his family. And, um, and as an example of his servant leadership, in 2019, he had signaled that uh, when their third child came along, Bonnie, that his plan was to step off to make sure there was enough margin to actually carry out all the ways in which he serves here at City Light as well as an elder. Uh, but with all the changes that were going on at the beginning of 2020, uh, he, he offered to stay on for a full year longer to do that. And so we didn't want to stretch the friendship forever. And we said, when the time is fitting, um, uh, we want to make way for you to be able to step off. And so from January, he stepped off eldership. And he has been a part of, as part of his transition, he's been helping us to prepare to implement some of the recommendations that have been made to us. And so what we're going to do is uh, in April, after our finances are, are audited, we're going to have an AGM to share with you what we are planning to do this year to be a biblically sound and governed church. Now, traditionally, AGMs, which is an annual general meeting, are not very well attended. People are like, ah, that's, you know, I've got enough on during the week, that sort of thing. But can I encourage you that when we release the date to be there, because it should matter to you that you'd be able to be confident in your church leadership that we're being governed in a sound and proper way and that you would know it and understand it and how decisions get, get made. I realize it's not very sexy, but it matters. That's the first time I've said that in a sermon, so there you go. <clears throat> so that's the first one. The second one, though, is a little more visible. One of the things that was identified almost immediately when an outside group came in, as they started to think about this church community, and started to think about the great people that we have and the leaders that we have and all the things that we're blessed with, the thing that became apparent was some of the limitations around our building, our dear, dear building. Our dear previously vomit green building with its red velour doors and green vinyl pews that have all been cleared out. But uh, as, as beautiful as it is, and as homely and tight and air-conditioned as it is, there are some issues with it. There are ultimately some challenges with this building. The first, and you may have noticed this if this is your first time here with us, or if you've brought anyone who is visiting a church for the first time, the first thing that's difficult is the gauntlet that you have to get through at the front. The gauntlet of Christians, right? And if you are someone who's coming to church for the first time, maybe unsure what it's going to be like, that's the first thing you have to make it through. But once you make it through into that, you get into this building and realize there are no exits and there is no easy way out. I'm, I'm in here for the whole time from here on. And, you know, it can be overcome, but it is a challenge. But if you want to be a growing, healthy, multi-gen church, this building has some real challenges to it. There's a challenge to growth in that as soon as we hit 80, it's pretty much full. 
and we kind of start to feel like, yeah, we've sort of, you know, we haven't finished the whole Great Commission, but we're mostly done. And so we, we had to move to two services reasonably quickly. That's a challenge to health because it means for about 130 people, we're running two Sunday gatherings. That's double your bands, your teams, everything, right? That puts a, a burden in terms of ministries. Almost half of the 11 a.m. membership are on kids' ministry. That is a significant challenge. It's a challenge to being a multi-generational church because kids love going mental. They have so much energy. God has, God has built them with just incessant energy and drive. They just love to charge around. But the problem is that parents in this room, as we're kicking off church, are standing around going, shh, stop, shh, don't do that, don't run across that. And we, we don't want kids' abiding memory of church to be shush. Right? We don't want their, them to grow up and their abiding memory of what it was like to be in a church community was being shushed the whole time. We want to be a church that is genuinely multi-gen, and so we need to start thinking creatively about solutions. And so here's where I'm getting to. We want to try something, and it's just an experiment, and it's only going to run for three weeks. That's it. For three weeks, we're going to combine services in the morning at 10.30 and head down to the high school to try and see what it's like to, to run Sunday gatherings in the high school together. Now, it will be the two Sundays after the weekend away, and the last one will be Resurrection Sunday. What a week to finish on. That's great timing, right? And the question that you might be asking is, well, why? Why would we be trying this? The first thing is, we get the power of two services combined. That's a powerful combination, 11 a.m. and 4 p.m. That's like salt and caramel. Right? It's together at last. <laughs> You combine our, our bands, our serving teams, just imagine the synergy, people, as you pull that together. Not only that, there's space for kids to go wild, and you can't break anything down there because it's all made out of concrete, because the Soviets made it, or something like that. I don't know what. They can, just, they can just go nuts, right? It's a comprehensive high school. And for a church that wants to be open and accessible, meeting in the high school is an opportunity to invite people. So here's what I'm planning to do with a couple of my friends, is to say, hey, look, for for three weeks, our church community wants to be an open church community that's accessible to people who don't necessarily have like a church background or anything. And so I'd love you to come along and just, just tell me what your thoughts are as we meet in a high school. We haven't done this before, so we kind of want to see what it's like for people. And I'd like to put the challenge out there for you to try that as well. And just throw it out there to say to someone, just, just come and check it out and tell us what you think. And we're genuinely open to hearing it. And so we want to try this for three weeks. And just see, see whether or not this might be something that God is pulling us towards for a more longer-term solution. Now, you might be thinking, gosh, do we really want to do this? And I think particularly for, for 4 p.m., right? Because in some ways, it's more costly for you guys than 11 a.m. I mean, over, we just had January where there was one service. This is your service time. So it is, it is a cost like that. And you might be thinking, it could go wrong. We put our application in, it could be knocked back by the DET. COVID restrictions could kick in again and sort of kneecap us around that. We've had a lot of change over this last year. Do we really want to try something else, even if it's only for a couple of weeks? And my thought would be, if we heed the words of Jesus in Matthew 28, we need to have a crack. Those are my words, not his, obviously. We need to have a crack because in Jesus is, is life everlasting. And people need Jesus. 
I was reminded of this several years ago when I saw a, just a short documentary episode called Diary of an Unattended Death. And it's a, it's a grim premise for a documentary. It follows people who, cleaners actually, who have to go into houses of people who have died but nobody knew that they did. And eventually they were discovered and so these people have to go in and, uh, and, and make the place and sanitize the place. And they, this one focused on the life of one particular woman called Natalie Wood, who was a widower uh, and had, um, had no surviving children. And they found her diary. And I think what made it so compelling was she was so articulate. And she had so many reflections on how society and things around her had changed. But there was one particular diary entry that stuck out to me. She said this, When we moved into our present house in 1966, the atmosphere of the streets was more or less one of a village formed by different nationalities. Today, the friendly atmosphere of the neighborhood is extinct. Except for a few privately owned houses, the whole neighborhood has been transformed into apartment blocks or strangers. A smile and a good day or a helping hand have become as rare and ex- as exceptional as a white whale. That is so sad. It should not be the case that our city is so desperately alone and so desperately in need of the gospel. The reason it's worth taking risks to get the gospel out there is because people need the answer to death and the answer is Jesus. In him there is life everlasting. And even after all of this, Jesus promised he will be with us to the end of the age to carry this out. And so we realize we want to hear from you you have questions, thoughts, even concerns about this. But as a church community over this year, it's worth us having a go, isn't it? Let's not, pray for a, let's not play for a draw this year or pray for a draw any which way. Don't do it. It's time to press on and to take the gospel out there because Jesus is worth it. He is worthy of worship. And people need to find salvation and healing and peace and forgiveness in him. Let's pray that God would do a mighty work through us. Father God, we praise you that you are a loving and compassionate Father. That you have and do love us with an everlasting love. That you are good and kind beyond measure. And so Father, we pray that you would guide us as a church community as we seek to fulfill the Great Commission, as we seek to honor Christ with all our lives and to make more and stronger disciples. May you build us into a growing, healthy, multi-generational community having a Sydney-wide impact, that Christ may be honoured, not that we may be glorified, not that we may be impressive, but that Jesus might be honoured and that many people might find peace and healing and love in Him. Father, we pray all of these things for the sake of Your holy name. Amen. We're going to take a minute now to reflect on these things deeply and then after that, Joseph is going to lead us in reflecting and so on.